Welcome to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast, where we go inside what makes a coach a coach. The Guardians of the Game podcast is a production of the National Association of Basketball Coaches and Learfield IMG College, brought to you by Wilson Sporting Goods. And now, here's your host, Dave Odom. Welcome back to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast. Today's guest is the head coach of the Purdue Boilermakers, Matt Painter. Matt, welcome to the podcast and uh, welcome to a new season. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. Well, uh, let's let's talk about uh, your early years in Fort Wayne. Uh, you attended Delta High School. Uh, you played there. Did you play sports other than basketball? Yeah, I was uh, I was born in Fort Wayne. I grew up in Muncie, um, Indiana. So I've always lived on a uh, a college campus or around a college campus my whole life. So. Um, Something's kind of, it's pretty neat just about being around the game and being around, obviously growing up in high school and seeing a lot of high school basketballs in the, uh, basketball games in the state of Indiana um, was pretty cool. And, um, you know, Muncie, Indiana had a lot of players. They don't have a lot of players now, but then, um, you know, they really did. And it was just, it was very good within the city, outside the city. And so growing up around, that area in the game and, you know, in, in ball state basketball, the local high school won the state in 70 to do, do 79 and 80 Ray McCollum last year. got to remember Jack Moore that played in Nebraska was their best player the year before that. And then Ray went on to play um, at ball state. So always following them and always kind of seeing the guys that came into ball state, whether it was Dan Marley or Ron Harper, just all the great players in the seventies and the eighties um, in that Mac conference. But, it was a good area, uh, very competitive, and I played baseball and football up until ninth grade. Um, I, I played high school football as, as a ninth grader, um, was a receiver, and um, I pitched in baseball, but I wasn't wasn't a very good hitter in baseball, and I really liked baseball. That was something that, when I look back on, I wish I would have kept doing, but I just <laughs> I wasn't very good, and I actually played my ninth grade year just in a kind of a small league in a small town, and just, just to keep playing, but... Um, I really enjoyed football, um, enjoyed the games. There's nothing better and competitively um, than a football game. Um, had a lot of fun there. Now, I, I couldn't stay in the practices, um, but I but I liked the games um, and really enjoyed it, but just didn't think that I could be a college uh, football player, didn't think I could be a college baseball player. And then I grew about 9, 10 inches in high school, so that really helped me um, put a lot of time into the game and kept growing, which obviously helped me, um, you know, become a prospect in high school. And then, uh, fortunate enough to get a scholarship offer to Purdue. You obviously grew up in a state and a region, uh, where basketball was dominant still is today. Um, Indiana is one of those States. When you say Indiana, you think basketball, um, you've got, uh, a number of really high level, uh, universities in that. Uh, state, you know, you got uh, uh, certainly yourselves at Purdue, and you've got Indiana, you've got uh, Notre Dame and Butler, and I'm probably forgetting somebody, but uh, you know, it's a it's an area where basketball is really dominant. Um, was that a factor in maybe the fact that you kind of specialized in basketball once you got to the ninth or tenth grade? Yeah, I, I think so. You know, you just you can do so much in the game of basketball by yourself. You know, you can put in so much time. Um, when I was in fourth grade, um, 
I don't know if it was my mom or it was my dad. They we used to have. Um, um, you, I know you're going to remember this. You'd, you'd have a milkman. <laughs> people don't realize you had a milkman. Like people would, you know, they would deliver your daily milk to you and put it in a little, little canister next to your door. And so our milkman backed into our basketball goal and hit it and, and bent it to the side. So my parents, they, they laid down a 50 foot slab of concrete in my backyard, in our backyard. And then we had floodlights, you know, we took the railroad ties and made like, um, like a post and fanned it out and put lights over it. And so like I could play all night and uh, just, you know, just fell in love with the game was always someone that was really inquisitive um, about, about what was going on. My dad was an Indiana fan. He, he went to, he graduated from Indiana. He was a big Bob Knight fan, um, got his judicial degree from Indiana. My whole family went to Indiana. So he went to the final four in uh, 76 and 81 when it was in Philadelphia. And then in 87, um, when it was in Louisiana in the Superdome when Indiana won it all. When Keith Smart made that, that shot, I was a sophomore in high school. He took me um, there. But I just, that area was really good. Like I, I talked about how good the basketball was in Muncie, but like 30 miles away from us was Marion, Indiana. So in eighth, ninth, and 10th grade, Marion won the state. Uh, that was Jay Edwards and Lyndon Jones. But 30 miles in the other direction from Muncie um, was Newcastle. And that's where Kent Benson played. It's where Steve Alford plays. So when I was in sixth, seventh grade, I don't remember, you know, Steve Alford was uh, a senior and I was averaging 37 points without the three point line. And I was able to see him play about 10 to 12 times. And, but we had good players from our area. Uh, Muncie Northside, the school that doesn't exist anymore. Mike Abrams lived down the street from me. He went to Louisville, Billy Butts, um, went to Michigan, you know, Muncie Central, as I mentioned earlier, had Bonzi Wells there, you know, who ended up being a lottery pick. Um, but there was a handful of other guys, you know, from Muncie Burris. They had a guy named Brian Carr that ended up being their coach that played at Nebraska. Muncie Southside had guys, a couple guys that ended up in Nebraska also. So they had a lot of guys through the years um, in that area, but the surrounding area was very good. Anderson was um, unbelievable. Obviously, probably the best player that played there was Troy Lewis that went on to score 2,000 points at Purdue, but Anderson's 15 miles from us. You know, Marion is 30 miles. You know, Newcastle's 25 to 30 miles. So you had all these little, small, little rural towns um, that was close right there, and that's just, that's all you knew. And so just kind of growing up in that area and playing basketball all the time, like, I never felt I was any good because um, you're always going to, to find a game, whether it was in a park or was it at the boys club or was at the Y um, anytime you could just find a, you know, a game. And there were so many good players. I mean, you had guys in the city of Muncie um, that you weren't better than that didn't play organized basketball. And uh, so it definitely kept you fighting and kind of kept you humble. And, um, but it, it got you better. There's no doubt you make a lot of improvements when there's a lot of competition. You're right in the middle of recruiting uh, for Purdue right now. Uh, but when you reflect back to your high school uh, recruitment, um, much, would you say it was much different than it is today? I mean, you end up with the great uh, Gene Cady. We want to talk about him in just a minute. But tell me about your recruitment as a high school senior. Well, I think it was a lot different. I was, I was somebody that was developing. I wasn't a, a guy when I was 14 or 15 that you thought I was going to play major college basketball and. I grew a lot. Um, I played JV basketball as a freshman. Then I averaged 12 points as a sophomore. Then I averaged 23. Then I averaged 29, 30 points my last year. But I wasn't overpowering. It was a, kind of a piece. I was a piece of a puzzle 
type player in terms of a guy that could pass and could shoot the basketball, but wasn't the most athletic player. But um, I waited until a lot more people recruited me because it's when the early, you know, 30 years ago is when that early signing period just kind of started. And so then if you would wait and, and we still had, you know, 15 scholarships at that time. So if you kind of held out and waited or whatever, you're going to get some quality schools. And, and uh, a lot of people jumped in there and I, I felt like I, I made the, the right decision for me. It was kind of the first piece of recruiting that I learned because my whole family was Indiana fans, including myself, but yet coach Knight recruited me, but didn't offer me a scholarship. And then I grew up, you know, just like in Purdue, you know, Purdue was Indiana's rival and I really kind of pushed them to the side when they first started recruiting me in my mind. And then my dad made me kind of rethink it just from a terms of a business decision. And he just, he goes, Hey, I'm, you don't have to go to Purdue. Um, but I want you to listen to what they have to say because he has discipline. You need discipline. They seem to win um, a lot of games where they shouldn't win games. It's kind of the way he put it. You know, they've always kind of overachieved. Coach Katie was a great coach. They had great education. It was two hours away. So it made me stop and think. And Coach Katie was very, very direct um, in, in recruiting. So he came in our home, and I was like, man, I wasn't. I wasn't too hip as an 18-year-old on some of the things he was saying. He was so direct. Some of the other coaches kind of gave me choices. You know, back then you didn't have to, you know, stay in the summer if you didn't want to. Now, you know, everybody stays in the summer. Kids are trying to get better 12 months out of the year. Um, not everybody could pay for summer school um, back then. But Coach Katie was like, you're going to be there in the summer. You're going to go to summer school. If you don't, you're going to get a job. Um, you got to learn to get up in the morning. you got to learn to outwork people. And I was 18 years old. I just wanted to hoop. You know, I just wanted to play. And uh, that, that wasn't the most appealing thing to me when he said that. But when I, he walked out that door, my dad was like, that's the only person that told you the 100% truth. And you need those things that he's talking about. And so that really made me take a step back and kind of realize that, you know, he might be the best coach for me. And um, I'm glad I picked Purdue and I'm glad I picked him. And um, it's a story that I always tell in recruiting because when it gets down to it, kids will do kind of what they want to do and what they like instead of kind of taking a step back and doing what's best for them. You know, uh, I was just thinking as I was listening to you talk and what you said was so true uh, for so many of us. Uh, where we are today is a product of people that we've been around and that have influenced us. Uh, the word mentor, you know, comes up a lot and. Uh, your your case, uh, you had a you had a father who was, you know, involved in your life, and and uh, you um, you learned so much, I'm sure, from him and your mother, uh, but but your father, and then you know he was he wanted the best for you, and so when Coach Katie comes into your house, he's looking at um, every every coach uh, in his own. Uh, in other words, he he looked at Gene Katie and said. How is he different than the other coaches? And um, right. uh, eventually it, he evolved into maybe the most important mentor in your life outside of your father. Yeah, no question. Like your, your mom and your dad, you know, really shape you. And I think when you're growing up, you just, you just don't know any better. And if you don't have those people next to you, if my dad isn't there and my mom isn't there, to help guide me. I don't make the decision that I made. I just simply don't. And uh, because it's, they will, young people make decisions on what they think is best, but they also make decisions on what they think others think is best. 
And when you have your parents, it's the one thing that they have the advantage of. They have the advantage of knowing your happiness and knowing what's best for you. And uh, it's got to stay right there. And, you know, a lot of the stuff that coaches are now like, you know, people ask questions, you know, you have an FBI investigation, you have people up against NCA sanctions and you take a step back and you realize kind of the point you made about your parents and your mentors. And the two guys that I work for the most in this business was Rick Samuels at Eastern Illinois and then Bruce Weber at Southern Illinois. And so like, I feel so fortunate because I got my first job at a division one level and I'm 24, 25 years old. And then that's how I really developed was through those two guys. And they were both had a lot of the same similarities, and very straight legs, hard work and blue collar. They taught you the whole occupation. They taught you how to schedule. Um, they, they, they told you to, you know, take care of your money. They told you how to treat people. They, you know, just all the things, the basic things that you need to learn. Obviously you got to know the game and how to relate to players and teach the game and recruit. And, but you know, they both were of high standards and, you know, instead of like looking at people and pointing fingers and saying, you should have done this or done that. I just feel, you know, very fortunate to have, you know, two guys like that to learn from. And then I came back and I was coach Katie's assistant for one year and that to be able to play for him for four years. And so I've had a lot of good mentors. So I feel fortunate to be in the position that I am because of that. All right. Don't get upset at me on this one now. Okay. I, I checked your uh, career out as a player in high school. You averaged 30 points a game, right at 30 points a game your senior year. But that changed dramatically when you went to college. Uh, we weren't averaging any 30 points. And at some point in your four-year college career, you began to think about coaching as, a, as an alternative to maybe your high school dreams of playing in the NBA. Take me through that process, uh, Matt. Why well, I think it's, it's pretty hard. You know, you go um, to school and you hear, you know, people lose what's real when they get recruited. Because when you get recruited by 10 schools and people are trying to say nice things to you to get you to come to their school, you, you, just, you drift out of reality on really who you are. You just do. And I'll, I'll be talking to guys and they just be like, they, they just want that scholarship offer. They want the scholarship offer. And then right as you give that scholarship offer, now something changes. Something changes in the air because now, you know, they've always wanted it. And they've always acted like when they've got it, they're going to come to your school. And now you're just one of the other people that, that, that has offered them. And it's just, it's a weird thing. And I know you've been through it for many, many years, but they get intoxicated. People that get recruited, get intoxicated about reality and understanding like, okay, I'm going to sign here. I'm going to go here. I'm 19 years old. Everybody else is 20, 21, 22, 23. They're older, they're bigger, they're stronger, they're more experienced. But yet, how can you use me right away? How can I impact your program right away? When most of the time, you know, guys can't do that because physically they're not ready. And I, I think when you go through that and you get recruited and you get there, and if you're honest with yourself, it's humbling. It's really humbling. It's like I walked into Coach Katie's office, I'll never forget, after a couple months, and I just was like, man, I think I need to redshirt. And Coach Katie looked at me and was like, man, I, I think you got a chance to start. And I'm like, boy, we got two different perspectives on what's going on here. I can't get, I can't get the ball past half court and pick up games, and he's not seeing this. And back then, you know, when you started October 15th, that was your first day of basketball. 
you know, you didn't do anything in the summer. You didn't do anything in the fall then. And like, I just was like, man, I didn't want to like tell him like, boy, I'm getting killed out here. Like I, you know, if I can ever play here, this would be cool. I ended up starting 50 games, but I didn't play, um, as a freshman. And it was, I realized how good you have to be and all the things you need to do just to survive. Like, when I was in college, Calvert Cheney and Greg Graham and Damon Bailey and Lyndon Jones were at Indiana. Um, that's just one school. You know, Jim Jackson had a great crew over in Ohio State. The Fab Five are two years younger than me. So my last two years was against the Fab Five. Michigan State's always got players. I could go on and on. The bad teams had pros. I mean, it just not everybody was leaving at that time to go to the NBA right away. And it just it was very, very humbling um, what you had to do just to survive. And I think through that, I think that that really has helped me as a coach because I understand what guys are going through. And I also understand that you've got to be honest and transparent with players. You have to, even when it hurts, man, you have to tell them the truth. Um, you, you can be a little bit diplomatic about it, but you have to tell them the truth, where they are, what they need to do to get on that court, especially before it happens. Because a lot of times when the obvious things are happening, you'll have guys that are just getting tormented in practice for the first two, three months. And then all of a sudden the game will come like, Hey, like, you know, why, why, why don't you play me? And you're like, well, well, you know, you're, you, you've struggled here for 60 straight practices. I mean, you know, you've been present for all 60, but they don't realize that they live in their own world a little bit. So until you can get them on that page where it's like, Hey, we got to be honest with ourselves here. And once we are, now we can really start to make some improvements um, and, and get better every day. The Purdue coaching tree has been very successful. I mean, it obviously begins with uh, Coach Katie, but you got names like Steve Lavin, you got Bruce Weber, um, you got Conzo Martin. I'm sure there are probably some others. Uh, you certainly uh, fit right in there. What influence maybe did uh, did Steve, uh, did Bruce, did Conzo have on you in addition to Coach Katie? Well, Conzo was a guy that was uh, my assistant, and then he also we played together. And he he was uh, such a hard-working player. Like went through a couple knee surgeries, came from East St. Louis, had a great program at, at East St. Louis, but was just so tough. Was so mentally tough. Um, his first year and a half, or whatever, just dragging his leg around playing basketball. Like you didn't even look at him when he first got here, like he was that that good of a player, just because he was injured and he was trying to play. And then he just really kind of took off and developed a three-point shot, but was just a great two-way player, you know, for us at Purdue. And then he's had a really good coaching career at some different stops. And just, he's always been a grinder and he's always been a guy that's, you know, never made excuses. And uh, he was great for me when I took over here at Purdue because he's, he's a compassionate guy, but he's also, um, he's hard on guys and he doesn't let them make excuses and, and makes them toe the line and makes them, you know, realize that there's a lot of people out there that have it worse when, uh, when guys start to kind of complain. And Steve Lavin for me was great. You know, he was always fired up and ready to roll. You know, he was our GA my first couple of years at Purdue and um, just had a great outlook on thing, had a good mind, you know, for the game, but just as a young coach, you know, always had that energy and it was good to go to those practice. Coach Katie had some long practices and uh, you know, at times you would think that clock was going backwards. And, um, but he, he had those three hour, three hour and 20 minute practices and Steve Lavin always had that energy and, uh, you know, he was great for us. And then Bruce Weber was that guy that was just, he was the staple of the Purdue program. You know, he was the, the really the backbone and, you know, did a lot of things behind the scenes and did a lot of little things and 
things you didn't realize until, you know, I worked for him at Southern Illinois and just, just knows how to coach and knows how to run a program. And, um, just did a lot for Purdue basketball in his, I think, 17 or 18 years as an assistant. And uh, I think that anytime you can have that, and you probably had it like with Coach Holland, and then you had some people that did that for you. When you have that good chemistry between that head assistant coach and that and that head coach, when that works, man, that's that, that really helps out a program. When, when assistants start to understand how to work for their head coach, and, and vice versa. And when head coaches understand what they have and how to utilize the strengths of their assistants, man, that really helps because when that's not there and there's not good staff chemistry, that hurts. It, 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 that's a setback. And uh, Bruce Weber and Gene Cady were just a perfect fit and uh, had a lot of success, success together at Purdue. Matt, off the court, uh, you've served on the NABC board of directors and also the NABC, uh, excuse me, the NCAA men's Basketball Oversight Committee. Um, tell us about the function of these two boards, why it's important that somebody like you uh, serve on these boards and actually, in so doing, give back to the basketball game, the game of basketball. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's really important because I think by nature as coaches, whether we're talking about officials or we're talking about recruiting, or we complain a lot. <laughs> and so like you, you give so much, like you have to live this job. Like this is a nine to five. If you want to be successful as a, as a college basketball coach, we always talk about quality of life and the balance of it, but there's times in certain stretches of the year that that's very difficult. Like you have to live this job if you want to be successful, but you also want to make the job better. You also want to do what's better for those student athletes as a former student athlete. That's what you want. So when they've asked me to do these things, you know, it's been an honor. Um, but it's great to hear um, others talk in the room. Someone will ask me a question, and now I'll say, hey, can I, can I go to these meetings and can I listen to six or seven other head coaches? Because everybody always has a little bit different perspective and makes people think. And you can't just think about yourself or your conference. You know, you got to think about, you know, Division three and Division two and low and mid-majors, and you have to think about everybody. And you have to keep an open mind to that. So it's, it's great to hear other people and other coaches and administrators and commissioners, you know, speak in these different committees about the game of basketball and what's best. But it's also important to speak up and fight for what you believe in, um, whether you're fighting for your team or your conference or just student athletes in general, because that's your role. You know, your role is to sit there and, and to explain to some people on the oversight committee. You know, you have one other college basketball coach on that. You have a couple player reps. You have a lot of people that work in conference offices and athletic directors and the NCAA staff. And, you know, given your two cents and your perspective after listening to the other people on the NABC board is really important um, because, you know, we've had some some things nationally. You know, you, you get some pushback um, on how things go and things will get the narrative will get driven through the media a lot. And you got to make sure that that narrative is accurate. You know, we, we all hear about the fake news or what's going on or, you know, you know, you got guys tweeting things that are inaccurate, but you got to make sure at the end of the day that, you know, what your intent and what your purpose is on those boards is to do right by college basketball and to keep making improvements. You know, you hear about things like uh, pay for play and student athlete image and, uh, you, you know, the, the uh, name and likeness rights uh, that we're talking about. Uh, how about the transfer rule? The three-point line has moved back. 
How do you see the game has changed, say, in the last 10 to 15 years since you've been uh, coaching at Purdue? Well, I think the money just keeps increasing. You know, we keep making more money as coaches. They keep making more money through, you know, the NCAA tournament, you know, March Madness, uh, the TV contracts. And so with that, you know, we're trying to do more and more for our student athletes and the opportunities that they get. You know, I'm the head coach at Purdue because – I got an opportunity as a student athlete 31 years ago. That scholarship offered to me was my springboard. You know, I wasn't an NBA player. Um, I wasn't somebody. But I also think as a student athlete, I probably took more than I got. What I mean by that is, you know, after it was over, I I, I just felt so fortunate. Like, man, how, how blessed am I to get this? I did, you know, one wrong turn somewhere, and I wouldn't have been in that position. I was just, you know, like I said, I was a 14th or 15th scholarship offer you know, in the spring. And um, I think people have to take a step back and understand that. But there are some people that generate so much for their institution. You know, there, there's there's people that, you know, the institution makes a lot of money off. A guy like Adrian Peterson in Oklahoma, you know, Drew Brees at Purdue, like Drew Brees has been fabulous for it. But he took that opportunity and obviously he's done well. But what if Drew Brees gets hurt? you know, never becomes an NFL player, you know, but he generated a lot of things for Purdue. So when they're out there talking pay for play and a lot of those different things, we just got to be um, forward thinking and understanding that, you know, we got to keep doing more for our student athletes and keep helping them with more opportunities so they can have a great life. When they talk about pay for play through a state, and I know it's went through California, they're going to have to regulate it somehow on a national level. So it's going to be really interesting to see from a legal front and also from a conference office, from the NCAA office, like how this kind of gets regulated. But I, I do think there's some things in there that can work to help these guys, but them getting a bunch of money when they're 21 years old, um, from this isn't always the best solution. I know what I would have done with money when I was 21. Um, I'd have lit it on fire. So if we could get some things pushed back for them and maybe get some money, you know, from some of this, from this likeness and get some regulation to the likeness. Um, I think that makes sense. I think guys getting their hands on some money or putting some things in an annuity or whatever it might be um, later on in life um, can be pretty smart. There's a lot of, there's a lot of things going on that now you know about, whereas say 20, 25 years ago, you know, without Twitter, without social media, there, there might be things going on. You just don't know about it. Now everybody, you know, talks, everybody's got such access um, to information. So it, it's a little bit different world we live in, but there's also still a lot of similarities. How about the transfer rule? You for that the way it is now, fifth year, transfer, uh, transfer without sitting out, waivers, those kind of things? I am not in terms of the transfer of the fifth year. And the thing that they did with the fifth year right away was make it an academic rule, which I thought, hey, this is great. You let a kid leave a place and he can go somewhere other, other place and get his uh, master's where he couldn't at that school. And it hasn't been used that way. Um, we've had some guys get their degrees here and we use the, you know, we use the rule, but I don't like it. I, I don't think it's the, the right thing. If, if they would push to keep it, I think that those guys should be able to still have to come out and sit out a year, and we should have to invest two years of a scholarship for one year of play. Um, I, I just think that it's it's really hurt some coaches. Um, you have to strengthen low major basketball. You have to strengthen mid major basketball. You know they're a big part of what we do. Also, it's not just high major basketball. You're getting anybody that's having success at low to mid major levels. They're either contemplating making this move or they're making this move. 
and they said it was an academic rule, and you got a lot of these guys that are just doing it, and they're not getting their master's. They're enrolling in some classes, and then they get the second semester, then they're done, and that's that. And so it's not been an academic rule like they like the intent was for. It's been strictly basketball. So hopefully they can throw that out. I think the waiver game has just gotten to a new level. Is there the, the right situations, and there's a lot of different instances that that go into play um, for these waivers, and it's the right thing? Sure. Um, but it's just gotten out of control where it's, it's been really hard um, to monitor. And it, it just is. And what information they get and how they get it and what's really going on. That You've got a lot of attorneys out there now that handle these, and they know how to handle them. And uh, they know how to get in those and how to really frame uh, those waivers to be able to get it. And they try to get things off precedent. And whether it applies or it doesn't apply, obviously some of it does apply. Um, but it, it's just gotten to where it's gotten a little bit out of hand. Um, but like, you know, when the toothpaste gets out of the tube, man, it's, it's hard after that. It is, it is really hard after that, but hopefully we can get a little bit more, you know, common ground with some of these things, um, you know, as, as the years progress. And then finally, uh, from a, a game standpoint, uh, the three point line continues to move back yet. Uh, the players don't seem to be shooting it any better and we continue to move it back. Why would that happen? Yeah, well, I think when they got to it, you know, they, they really want more spacing. Um, I think they've always tied it with the, with the widening of the lane, and they didn't widen the lane. And, you know, we post up at Purdue, and uh, this year, this past year, um, we, we've changed how we've played through the years. We always haven't been the same way. We just try to base everything on the strengths of our personnel and our best, you know, offensive players. And, um, so we've posted up. So I was a big proponent of not letting them move that lane out because um, I think you still got to play low post basketball. Um, and it really gives you, you can really give you an advantage, even though the game's kind of going away, not kind of going away from that. It is going away from that, especially on the professional level. Um, but they just think it's, you know, too easy of a shot, but yet the numbers aren't that glaring. Um, I was kind of shocked, to be honest with you, that they moved the line back um, this year. I, I didn't think it was you know, that big of a deal. I didn't think the spacing was that, but I also know when rules like this happen, it's better when you really don't know to pump the brakes and kind of see how it is. Um, the thing that I'm more concerned about coach on this is that, you know, I, I we recruit towards people that can shoot and, you know, we have to be careful. You always got to be efficient in what you're doing and take good ones. Um, but I think there's a lot of people that weren't that good at three point shooting teams that now even got worse. And now you can do a better job defensively at really clogging that lane up and making it harder for them to get in that lane. We've, we've really tried to work on that so far in the preseason of not letting people get in not letting Cause before, like it used to be, you know, before that three point line, you know, got in there, as you know, you'd be, you'd be in practice and you'd say no splits, nobody gets split. Don't let that ball get in the paint. And that's that. Cause who cares if somebody shoots a 22 footer or somebody shoots a two footer, it's both two points. So you might as well just force people to shoot, you know, contested long twos, and that's what you want to do. Well, now this can come into play a lot more because now this line's even back further. So it'll be interesting to see. We're um, we're looking forward to collecting some data to see if uh, if kind of that theory holds true. Last thing, Matt, and then I'll let you run and get back to doing whatever is important to you this time of year. Um, the importance of giving back. Obviously, you've come up in a program where Coach Katie, Coach Weber, Coach Lavin, uh, these other guys have been very, very important to you. Uh, you've taken uh, something that you feel like is important from each and every one of them, 
you have uh, kind of parlayed that in NABC Board of Directors, oversight committees, and other clinics and things that you do. Why do you think it's important? And I want to tell you it is important because, uh, you know, when, when I go around the country, I have people uh, say to me, Coach, I really enjoyed the podcast you did with Matt Painter or whomever it happens to be. They listen, mm -hmm. and these are mostly young coaches. Why is it important that we leave the game better today than it was when it was handed to us? Oh, it's, it's really important because things are always changing. You're always learning. And uh, that's the one thing, you know, Coach Katie and Coach Weber got me involved in USA basketball. And I'm always, every time I go to USA basketball, whether I'm an assistant coach or a head coach or I'm on the selection committee, I always leave there and I learn something. I learn something through players. I learn something through one of the coaches that we hired uh, to coach one of the teams. And so those experiences, like in meetings and in coaches, you know, you're, you're constantly learning and you're constantly giving back. And it's so important to, to make it better for the next person. And uh, something we really, you know, harp on in our program, you know, make it better for the next crew that comes through here and, you know, be a leader, do what you're supposed to do. Well, the same holds true, you know, for a coach, you know, make it better for the next coach, you know, you know, I heard something early in my coaching career, and I always mention it when I talk publicly is, you know, we're all replacements. You know, they're going to have another coach here at Purdue. You know, I hope not for a while, but, you know, they are. And uh, you better be thankful for the position that you have and the time that you're there and, and enjoy it. But, like, for a college player, you know, that's a quick that's a quick turn, man, whether that's two years or four years or whatever it might be for, for these guys now. And so, like, you know, you're going to look back and reflect and say, man, this is – that was one of the best times of my life. So you better enjoy it because we're all replacements and, uh, you know, just try to leave it, you know, for the next guy and, and just do a good job for your coach. Katie called him company men. When I was 19 years old, I didn't understand what that meant, but he just says, be a company man, you know, do what's best for Purdue. And he goes, and if you can have that attitude and you can be selfless, he goes, you're really going to help this program and then just keep it going. I want to thank everyone for, tuning in to the NABC Guardians of the Game podcast and to Coach Matt Painter for taking his time, his valuable time, uh, to be with us as well. Uh, good luck to you and your Boilermakers this year, Matt. And uh, for those that are listening and want to learn more about the NABC, all they need to do is visit the NABC.com.